What does it cost to be happy? As a founder, how much are you willing to sacrifice to build the exact culture that you want? Is it possible to optimize for profit and happiness? How does profit enable happiness? We've asked thousands of founders what they care about most. We get responses like team, mission, culture. And if we were looking for a list of things you should obviously care about, those would be great answers. But we think that being happy takes far more deliberate action and highly specific goals. Today on the Startup Therapy Podcast, we're going to explore why we think optimizing for happiness is the right move. Hey, this is Ryan Rutan from Startups.com, back for another episode of the Startup Therapy Podcast with my partner and co-host, Will Schroeder. Will, where in your 25-year history of starting and scaling companies did happiness become an objective and not a byproduct? When did you start to give it merit as an outcome that you should plan for? Well, honestly, it became a priority way too late in life. And I think that was the genesis a lot of, the, of a lot of this topic was the fact that we tend to think of happiness as something you get toward the end of this startup journey, right? You know, we work so sure. hard, we make so much sacrifice and somehow sa uh, happiness comes in the end, kind of like with a paycheck. And <laughs> unfortunately, that's kind of the narrative among startups, right? Is that, that the happiness comes later. We're building toward that happiness. And, and I don't think that's entirely wrong. I just don't think that's entirely necessary, right? I, I, I learned over time after doing a whole bunch of startups that I didn't necessarily have to defer being happy and or building a culture where everybody else was happy just because we were in startup form. Okay. So what changed? Well, <laughs> if you can recall, Ryan, like when we started startups.com, call it six years ago, we were in a much different place than when we, where we had been all of our lives prior. We were all becoming fathers for the first time. I had hair. <laughs> <laughs> much has changed. Yeah, we got old really, really fast. And, and, and I remember, God, man, I remember sitting down uh, in our conference room talking about this. And I remember saying, damn, we all got old. Right. <laughs> damn, we're, we're all about to become responsible parents. What the hell happened? And it started to kick off this conversation about how this time around, you know, with this startup, how things had to be different. And up until that point, you know, that was my ninth startup. Up until that point with all the other startups, it was the same routine. It was start startup, work every waking hour, kill yourself, and then maybe things work. And they usually don't, but maybe they do. And this was the first time we were forced to stop and say, yeah, it's not that easy this time, right? Like at, at, right. at six o'clock or <laughs> any, any bit later, we're now taking time away from our family and that's all of a sudden not okay, right? And, and, and we're grown ass men trying to figure this out. Right. Yeah. At that point, priorities have to shift. Um, you can no longer just make the trade-offs. You know, when we were single founders, it's a very different story. Even as a married founder, it was a different story. That is that exponential increase in, in humans that occurred in my house uh, was happening. It, it meant that there was uh, it was an exponentially harder trade-off to make. Um, and I think it, yeah. it was it was the catalyst to forcing a discussion, right? Whereas before yeah. we could have all said, yeah, I get it. You know, we're going to work insane hours. We're not going to be all that happy about it. You know, let's call it what it is. And I think this time around, we said, look, we're going to have to make significant sacrifices to make our families work 
and by way of that, make the business work, what other things would we be sacrificing? Right. And I think that's the right question to ask, right? Exactly how much are you willing to sacrifice to build what you want? Exactly. And and I, I don't think this is a conversation that startups or founders tend to have. We all generally say we want to build a, a positive culture, a happy environment, etc. But I don't know that we're very deliberate about this process where we sit down and think very specifically about what sacrifices we're willing to make. More importantly, what we really care about uh, on a go forward basis in the startup, things that we're not willing to compromise on anymore. Sure. And kind of list that out as our bill of rights, so to speak, to say this is going to be the genesis of the entire company going forward. Yeah, it really has to start there, right? It has to start with the goals and they have to be super specific. If they're not, then you're not going to have any you know, achievable path to get there. And sort of like, well, I'd like to find the gold at the end of the rainbow, but I don't have a plan for getting this. So you got to find that goal first and then you work back to that. And I think it does come back to being willing to make those sacrifices that it takes to achieve those goals. But again, if you don't have these really specific goals, what's interesting, I can go back in time and say, I still made a lot of the same sacrifices. In some cases, I made worse sacrifices. And I still w- I wasn't getting what I want because I wasn't clear about what I wanted. And so I think that that being able to sit down and say, here are the clear, immutable goals of the organization, whether those are, are culture or profitability or, you know, uh, the team that we work with. I think that really, really matters. Um, so what were some of the examples, Will, in uh, going back to that conference room as we were sitting there and talking through these things? What were some of the examples uh, that you can recall of things that we were clear and sure we wanted to accomplish? Oh, there's a bunch. Of, and, and we'll walk through them because I really want to go through some detail on these. But I will say it was an interesting point in life, not just because because we were all becoming fathers for the first time, but also because we had all been around the block a few times. At that point, I was 37 years old. I'd been running my businesses since I was 19, had seen a lot, and I was kind of young enough to still make course corrections in my life and how I was going to spend my my day, Yeah. yet old enough that I'd seen a few things before, and I could realize what was a bullshit path and what wasn't. <laughs> sure. exa- yeah, you know, for example, up until that point, until the point I was 37, uh, I was working every waking moment of every single day. It, it didn't even occur to me that I could work a, an eight hour day like that just right. seemed heretical. Right. And so the idea of not going on vacation to me was a badge of honor. Right. I mean, in retrospect, yes. these are the dumbest yep. things in the world. Right. <laughs> but <laughs> well, I lived by for two stick, decades. Stick with that for a second, because yeah. I think this is important for all founders to know, particularly young founders, that. It wasn't that we got to a point where this was okay and figured all this stuff out. We just got to a point where the rest of life forced us to examine this and we started making what we will argue today better decisions about what we optimize for. So it isn't necessary to have gone through all this to get to this point. Those badges of honor didn't stack up to being able to optimize for happiness. We just realized that we could, but that could have happened at any point in the journey, in my opinion. Agreed. Agreed. And this was just a moment that was very arresting in a positive way where we said, "Okay, we're about to buckle in and do this thing all over again with startups.com. What have we learned? You know, kind of taking it out and putting it on the table and say, like, what don't we want to do again? So some of the things that really came to mind, I thought about across all the different companies, a bunch of venture funded companies throughout that path. What are things that really stuck out to me that I really hated and things that I really liked. And incidentally, the things that I really hated became more of the defining characteristics. For example, sure. 
when I look back on all the different companies that I'd worked on, what really became the highlight weren't the companies, it, it was the people that I was working with. Sometimes good, sometimes bad, right? I ran an agency for nearly 10 years. What I remember about the agency is clients yelling at me. That's what I remember. <laughs> we grew and became a really successful agency. Yeah, yeah. But my highlight reel involves being chewed out from, from clients at all different stages in our growth and how much I just fucking hated that, right? And then when I think about doing venture-funded companies, listening to investors just chew me out over why my idea was horrible or about maybe why we weren't performing and things like that. And again, I always caveat this. These are actually good people, but it sucks getting chewed out all the same, right? Sure. And then the last piece was just people that, that I'd worked with, you know, employees or, or what have you, that I just hated seeing every day. Right. And I'm sure they hated seeing me. I'm sure like, you know, my, yeah, I'm on far more, list, you know, than the opposite. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so let's call it what it is. Right. But I started to think about all those things. And I said, you know, at the end of the day, I don't want to work with people I don't like anymore. It's just that simple. Right. And what sucks is it, it feels like you have to, and, and maybe I did. Right. You know, maybe I did have to work with investors. I didn't like, cause I needed the money. Maybe I had to work with clients. I didn't like because I needed the money. Maybe I need to had, had to work with employees. I didn't like because I felt leveraged in some capacity. Right. Sure. But man, if you add all of those things up, not having to work with people I don't like anymore was like the biggest win ever. Right. Just not getting into those relationships or God forbid, getting out of them as fast as possible. You know what I mean? It has so many impacts on the day to day. I mean, we all know the math on this. We spend more of our waking hours with these people than our own families in a lot of cases. And so being able to say, I'm going to build a company culture out of people who I actually want to spend time with, because whether I want to or not, I am going to spend time with them, right? Absolutely. So let's make sure that, uh, yeah, and like it's it's the no jerk rule, right? Let's just uh, let's just not have them around. Um, and, it, and, and I think not it always manifested. Easy. Yeah, no, it's not easy. I think it manifested in, in a lot of our policies. You know, when we started hiring people, the first question we asked is, "Are they a culture fit?" Right? Is yeah. this somebody that I'd want to have a beer with on Saturday? Right? Yep. Because we can teach people more skills, but if they're kind of an asshole. There's nothing we can, can do about that. There, there's there's no unasshole skill, yeah, right? It tends you know to I mean? be a lesson that people don't unlearn. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I remember that became a really, really important core value for us. And, and, and we'll get to this later, but I think when we talk about how hard it is to stick to that value, may have also been one of the hardest things for us to, to stick to because it's really easy to get into situations, whether it's investors or customers or coworkers, et cetera, where you start to load the relationship. Yeah. There's an entirely, uh, another discussion around what the cost of sticking to these goals are. And I yeah, think no we doubt. should address that at some point, uh, but you're absolutely right. Um, it's not as simple as saying fundamentally, here's where we stand. Let's do this. And then from that point, it becomes very easy making these big fundamental decisions is the easy part, actually, because there's usually a clear reason for doing it. When you have to live through that on a daily basis, it becomes significantly more different. And I think I think what we did a nice job of when we were going through this initial discovery as a team when we were forming the company was being very specific about these things. Yes. Right. Instead of just using amorphous goals like we want to have a positive culture where everybody feels inclusive and good, right? That That's cool. Of course you want that, right? Right. I, I always joke to say, whenever you make a decision like that or a decree like that, state the, the opposite 
and see if they would make any sense, right? In other words, if you say, we want a culture where everyone's miserable and everybody hates their jobs. Okay, like then what the hell is the point in in saying that we want a culture where everybody's (laughs) happy? Like what else would there be, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But that said, it's hard to stick to. But then we started to branch from there. And I thought that conversation got really interesting. And and if you recall, it took months. This wasn't like a, a one day or one afternoon. It took months to get this all out of our head and really be specific about it. Sure. Right. And that, and that was the challenge, right, was to get it down to being able to say, like, are we being as specific as we can about what we mean by this? Because any sort of wiggle room in, in the fundamentals of this was going to lead to bad outcomes. Right. Because it's like, well, yeah, but, you know, this person's skills trump the fact that they're, you know, a so-so culture fit. And and so by being very clear on what we meant by culture fit, we were able to ward those things off. And, and I, if we go back in time, I don't want to name any names, but we can think through some situations where we had people who on paper would have been excellent hires that we passed Absolutely. on. And I'm yeah. so happy that we did because we've now built the culture that we wanted and we have optimized for happiness. And so this discussion is probably very easy for you and I, because we're at a state now where I think we have optimized for happiness and we're looking backwards into it significantly harder when you're, when you're in, in a place where you're trying to build a company and saying like, how do we get to that point? But the, the hindsight is a beautiful thing at this point for us. Absolutely. And, and we started to look at all these different vectors in the company. One of the things that we talked about earlier, we were talking about we were all about to become fathers. And yes. I remember all of us sitting down having this discussion and saying, we don't want to take time away from our families. Now, nobody does want to take time away from their families. It goes back to my, <laughs> right. you know, my, my, my opposite yep. discussion, right? Yep. Yet saying I don't want to do it and actually sticking to that is so damn hard. But here's where I think we did a, a nice job. I think this this played out much better than I even expected. One of the things we did was we sat down and I remember sharing uh, you, me and a, f- a few of the other folks in the room saying, what were our childhoods like? Because I think that became a powerful motivator of what we didn't want to replicate. And almost yes. without prompting, every single person in the room said, I never saw my dad or I never saw my mom. They were working all the time. And, and I knew they were always busy, but if I rewind back to my childhood, it involves lots of blank moments where they weren't at the dinner table, so to speak. See, I I was actually exception to that rule in that my father, who was a physician and by by proxy an entrepreneur, did make that work. So I had this great example, which doesn't make it any easier, right? Because now you feel like you got something you have to live up to as opposed to something that you want (laughs) to change, right? right? Right, It's like, literally, the guy didn't miss out. And I don't, I, I probably played a thousand sports matches across my career. He didn't miss one, right? I remember the one, I'm not even kidding, the one that my mom missed. I remember it because she was very ill. So I remember specifically that that was the one that she missed. And so they did. That was a fundamental rule in our in our household. We don't miss these events, right? And, and so you in the same way, it that way. Yeah, right? and I remember it specifically. And because it was specific, we weren't going right. to miss these things. Right, and, and I want my kids, and I know you do too, to have those same memories. So to be able to say, hey, look, I want to create a culture where the, the, the children, <laughs> the folks that work here actually have amazing memories of their parents. They won't appreciate why mom or dad was there all the time, but we'll know that we've created an environment where they could be there all the time. So, for example, exactly we did it. things like uh, we created work from home Wednesdays where the whole company works from home on Wednesdays. And now we're beta testing also work from home Fridays and people are working, they're getting their jobs done. But more importantly, they're seeing their kids, right? Yes. And we built a culture that makes that happen. It makes that okay, right? And I, I think 
that's something I'm really proud of. But I'll say this. It's not something I think I would have intuitively appreciated before I was a parent myself. No, it isn't. And and again, this is another one of those lessons that I'm not sure how much of it you can really take by proxy. It's kind of like when you hear people say like, oh, well, you know, I know what parenting's like. I have I have plenty of friends that have kids and, and anybody who's actually a parent's just rolling their eyes into the back of their head and, and <laughs> you know, letting out that long sigh, like you have no idea. Um, and so I think to some degree, you have to go through some of this stuff firsthand to really appreciate it. But I hope we can shortcut that process for some folks just by talking about it. I agree. And and so I think what really gelled, and I think this starts to go across a lot of the, the things that we commit to, is everyone else agreed, right? Everyone else said, hey, I'm not going to miss a kid's soccer game. So when somebody goes to a kid's soccer game, everyone high fives them right now. Yes. I'll contrast this. That wasn't the way I felt prior to this era in my life, right? Sure. If, if I rewind back to, to Scrooge <laughs> yeah. Will from, from yep. when, when he's 23 <laughs> and guy who was probably in his 30s, who at the time I thought was like Yoda age, right? Said, hey, I'm going right. to take my kid at four o'clock to a soccer game. I literally thought he was working a half day that day, right? I mean, again, I was, is it insensitive? Totally, right? But it wasn't me trying to be insensitive. I just didn't know any better, right? right I thought, well, right. we're going to work till midnight tonight, like every night for the next 10 years. Like, why would you be yeah. leaving at four? There are just I some trades you can't appreciate until you've been forced to make the trade. And then that's then what I'm saying, understand. man. And, and, and yeah. I, I understood it. I didn't appreciate it. And so I think this time around in kind of building a culture for happiness, there were a lot more things that I genuinely appreciated and therefore could kind of start to build a better environment. And, and I think it shows. I, I, I think, you know, the feedback we get from our staff and and uh, in the feeling that we get amongst ourselves, it's it's pretty obvious that the level of happiness is pretty damn high. It is. And I, and I think that you touched on something really important, which is that we do also celebrate these things. We do give high fives around people going and doing the things that they should to drive happiness in their own lives. And I think that if you just make these policies and you say that, like, look, you know, we're all about family. OK, but if you don't get specific about that by saying that, like, hey, we don't ever want you to miss a soccer game. We don't ever want you to miss a birthday. We don't want you to be late for dinner. Right. Those things are specific. And then if you go a step beyond that and say, we're also going to talk about these things as a company, we're going to talk about them when we do them. We're going to ask our staff if they're doing them and we're going to celebrate when these things happen, even though they're just these tiny, relatively inconsequential activities as a company. It's important because this is what concretes this into our culture and makes it real. Because otherwise, I truly believe, and we've seen it play out. I've, I've, we've been in companies where we said things like this, or you said like, well, we're family first. And then everybody still felt like the ax was over their shoulders, right? Saying like, well, yeah, but if you put family first, we're going to whack you. Right. right that right. cannot be the actual culture. The difference between stated culture and actual culture is often very, very stark. And in our case, it's just not. And we've done that very intentionally, very purposefully. And we continue to make an effort at it every day. And I think that's so important. Yeah. And, and I think it comes from the top down, right? Uh, in as much as I think the the team here, we've got about 170 people here, but I think the team here sees that we're living by that. You know, we're trying to be, um, call it engaged parents, or we're trying to, you know, optimize for happiness in our own right. I think if... If we say, hey, this is going to be a, a, a culture all about happiness or you know personal engagement, et cetera, and then we don't do it, or like you said, if we say that it's this culture of happiness, 
but then also say, and you're going to be happy working 100 hours a week. <laughs> right? Like, right. That's not really, not really the same message. Yeah. Well, and, when you redefine happiness and then pretend that that somehow, you know, then just fits the mold, it's it doesn't work, right? It has to be real. Yeah. But look, man, um, it, it's also, it's not all of the, the, the bullshit things we try to layer on top. It's not things like the foosball table in the company outing, et cetera. That's right. not happiness. Happiness is fundamentally changing my life so that I live better because I work at this company, right? It's not the snacks in the break room. You know, it, it's not all the, the perks right. per se. It's the Hawaiian fundamental shirt thing. Fridays, right? If yeah, that's exactly. your definition it, right. of company culture and that's what's supposed to make everybody happy to work there. Good luck. Right. Yeah. And, and look, and, and those things are, are wonderful. I, n- nobody's nobody's ever picketed over our free snacks. Right. I mean, you know, <laughs> everyone's happy. But the life changing things, the things that truly make us happy and more engaged at life and make us kind of more refreshed when we come into work are the things that really give us time to live our life in a proper way. And I'm not even going to use the phrase work-life balance because I think that's a, a horrible phrase that's often oh, man. Uh, beat to death, right? <laughs> but but there, Don't get me started. I would rather say work-life optimization, right? And, and what I mean by that is, and I'm going I'm I'm to emphasize the work part of that. There are a certain amount of hours in the day that we are incredibly productive. They're far fewer than any of us are willing to admit. And... They don't come that often. For example, right. I'm a workaholic, right? I'm insane about work. But you know what? I went back through, and a lot of this ties together. I went back through, and I started to audit where I was most productive, when I was most productive, and how often in a week did I have my kind of shining ESPN highlight reel moments. Dude, it right. wasn't that much. Right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> like I, I found... If I work an 80-hour week or a 40-hour week, my net output of the most important things that I do is almost identical. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly it, right? It, I've, I've found the exact same thing, right? The hamburger doesn't get better. It just has more bun at the end. Yeah. Like, it's not the important pieces that I'm doubling down on. I just tend to do more of the work that kind of does need to get done. It'll, it'll help here or there, but it's not the high-value stuff. So what I've found that's worked well for us is we concentrate our week into essentially 40 hours. Now, again, if you were to go back to old 22-year-old Will and you were to say, hey, 22-year-old Will, we're going to consolidate all of our work weeks to 40 hours and just get everything we want to get done. I think his <laughs> head would have exploded. Right? What, what are you going to do with the second half of your week? <laughs> exactly. exactly. We, we get a, a full vacation every week. And so, so I, I always use that contrast. So when people hear me talk about these things, they don't think that I'm just like in some kind of nether world where I don't understand how the world works. Right. I'm saying I've been on both sides of this equation extensively. And so I've had a good opportunity to compare the two. And I'm just trying to suss out in my life which one of those 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 strategies is bullshit and what actually works. Yeah. I do think when when people say, hey, this company is all about work-life balance and it's this ticket to pretty much not work, that pisses me off. Right. Yeah. I mean, because it's a tremendous amount of work. Right. Conversely, when work-life balance means basically I just get to do whatever I want, but I still get a paycheck, right? That's not work-life balance, right? <laughs> the there's a balance is, is also key to this to this phrase. I also hate the phrase work-life balance. I think work-life optimization is a nice twist on that. The thing I tend to reference is is work-life blend, right? And that's how I feel like the, what we've kind of struck on allows people to have and do both. And really my big takeaway from from that whole thing is that happiness isn't about making a trade-off. It's about realizing that you don't have to make them. 
that was when I found that I could be happier about everything I was doing was when I didn't treat it as a zero sum game. Ooh, time with kids means not achieving work. Ooh, work means not time with kids. It isn't like that, right? It isn't a zero sum game. And to your point, we're not that optimized in how we spend our time anyway. So the idea that I move 10 minutes here to pay attention to my kids and defer whatever I was working on for 10 minutes should not change the the outcome of the company, right? Unless it was that, you know, the magic uh, Monopoly money man calling to, to buy us and I didn't pick up and then he gets <laughs> hit by a bus, right? Like, sorry, guys, <laughs> we'll find another one. But But I think what's important there is that you've earned the right to be able to take that time. I mean, to be specific there, I think at some point we have to we have to concentrate on where and how to earn the right to take that time. And, and I, when I say earn the right, I don't mean personally, I mean financially, right? Yeah. There is some point, sure. some threshold where the company has to be viable enough that I can kind of take my foot off the gas just long enough to kind of do other things. Because I think where people get a little bit confused, and, and again, younger Will would have gotten confused on this one, is when you're in this shit, when, when you're 18 months into this thing, you're sacrificing everything, you're getting paid zero dollars, you're just racking up debt, and your entire life feels like it's just compressing around you, there's no version of you that's like, oh, that's cool, you know, I'll just take some time off, right. I need some work-life balance. You're like, yeah. are you out of yeah. your mind, right? Yeah, exactly. And so I think it's 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 valuable for us to maybe dig in just a little bit as to what you have to do in order to kind of unlock a little bit more of that life. Right. Sure. And, and I mean, and at, a, at its heart, we're talking about profit. Right. So you can boil it down to just how does profit enable happiness? And I think that that is an interesting point because there's this sort of threshold that you have to cross. There's this minimum requirements that you have to meet under which work-life balance just means you're probably in life mode and worried as shit about what's going on at work, right? And so yeah, until absolutely. you hit that, these these minimum thresholds, there is no real version of, of, of full happiness. And so let's talk about it. how does uh, how does profit enable happiness? Let me kind of start with the opposite, which is how does not having profit drive non-happiness? Uh, and, and, and <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, ways. yeah, I don't think anybody needs to have that explained per se. However, what I think is interesting is if we go rewind back to, to year one uh, of the startups.com story, if you recall, there was a point where I was under so much stress, you'd take me to the hospital, right? And yes. so, so that was not a fun drive, not a fun drive, man. And I basically felt my, my heart stop. I had in, in retrospect it was a full on panic attack. So before we get into the Shangri-La, we just sat down and made this, you know, uh, this <laughs> is, this huge uh, statement that we're going to be able to have perfect work-life balance just because we decreed it. Um, right there's that ride to the hospital where I'm in the hospital for a couple of days having heart checks done to find out what was happening to my body. Right. Terrifying. Yes. And during that time, that was us trying to work our asses off to earn the ability to do things like take the day off on a Wednesday. And so what we did, which I thought was really valuable was we were specific about what goals financially do we need to get to in order to start to unlock some of these benefits. Sure. Because right. there was this sense that and then let's let's use that. Let's use that very specific example about work from home Wednesday, because it's something that I think our entire team loves. It's something that when I share that with other companies, uh, particularly people that work in corporate, they just give me the stink eye at that point. They're like, really, you guys get to work from home on Wednesdays. And so let's use that very specific example. We had some very, very targeted financial goals and performance goals 
that we wanted to hit prior to fully enabling that. And right. then even when we decided to test it, we wanted to measure against that. We knew that there may be some some backslip, right? And so back to that very early question we said around what are you willing to sacrifice to achieve the company culture and the happiness that you want to drive? And so we were very cognizant of that. And we said, look, we need to get to this level so that if there is some backslide around the financial performance or or any other optimizations that we're looking at, that we're willing to accept those as a trade for optimizing for happiness. Yeah, and absolutely. I, I remember very clearly sitting down as a group and defining here's where we want to be. And then here are the things that we're going to watch as we make these decisions so that we make sure that we don't overstep our toes on the cost of this particular happiness optimization. Right. Yeah. And I think we're realistic. And I think this is an important part of this. We're realistic about the fact that there wasn't going to be a version where we were just clocking out at the end of the day, going home and enjoying this work life balance type thing while also losing all of our money. Right. <laughs> right. Like, the happiness tends to ebb with the uh, with the bank account. Right. Yeah. You know, whenever I, I see some rich guy getting interviewed, he's some you know recently minted billionaire that says, hey, I have life advice from you. Money isn't everything. It's like, dude, because you have it. Right. right. <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to be the guy that's sitting up here saying, you know, happiness is everything. You should optimize for happiness. And our listeners going, what's this guy talking about? Like, I'm losing so much money. Like, how would I be optimizing for happiness? You sound like you're out of your mind. Yes. What I'm uh, what I'm saying, and I think, you know, Ryan, and I, you, you know, I've gone through this is it's not an initial starting point. While you can set the goals, you have to look for enablement goals to be able to actually pull that off. Right. Right. Now, I think I think it is important to to have this stuff built in from the beginning, um, but you can't always act on it. To your point, there's a lot that has to happen before you can really turn these things on and, and, and see them manifest in the business. But um, I don't think it means you have to defer making the decisions, uh, but you may have to defer taking the action. Absolutely. And it's essentially what we did a nice job of, and it worked out fairly well, I'd say, is we said, look, there are certain thresholds of income, even if it's not profit per se. So I don't want to overstate profit, but there are certain thresholds of income that if we can get to at least this much cash coming in the door, we can breathe just a little bit easier and maybe kind of unlock some more opportunities around optimizing for happiness, taking a work from home Wednesday, et cetera. But it's important to know we didn't just do this all out of the gate. We didn't have this, this beautiful kind of decree that said, here are all the wonderful things we're going to be able to do, and we're going to lose a bunch of money while we're doing it. <laughs> right, right. We weren't that optimistic. Sounds good. Let's go. Yeah. And so I, I think part of this for us, that, that where it's worked well for us, is defining the goals very well uh, as far as you know what parts of our lives were really important to us that we wanted to see significant change that the company could enable. I think we did that really well. The second was defining what milestones financially would put us in a position to allow us to breathe a little bit easier. But I think the last point that was really hard was actually sticking to it, right? Like maintaining the conviction to see it through. Easy to say, hard to do. <laughs> That's right. No, look, when we're having those P&L discussions, it's like, look, we, we may see, you know, a 10 or 15% fall off here. Hopefully it'll be temporary as people adjust to this new change, but we're cool with that. And we say that and we all feel good. We walk out of the conference room and then two weeks into the month where it's actually starting to happen, we might start to feel slightly different about it as, as we start to see the performance change. Right. And, and that's where you really have to remind yourself why you're doing this. And that we took a fundamental stand that said, this is important to us and we will stick to these goals. 
but yeah, it's it's not always easy. It's it's one of I would say it's probably one of the biggest gut checks that you get as a founder because it's not like making one financial trade off for another. Like we'll spend less on this product this month, but we'll spend more over here because we think we're going to get a bigger immediate return on that investment. The returns on investment for optimizing for happiness are myriad and powerful. They're also just a little less obvious. And so I think that in terms of trade-offs, it can be really hard to stick to your guns in this case. You feel the same way? Yeah. And, and I'll give you a specific example. Early on, when we we're making this decree, so to speak, one of the things we all agreed on is that we don't want to have to answer to anyone, right? And again, when people say that, who would want to answer to anybody? But wait until you have to, right? Wait until <laughs> yeah. you sign a big enough client, yep. until you raise capital, until you, do, until yep. you do all the things where maybe at the moment of truth, you don't realize that you've just signed up for a new boss. But dude, you signed up for a new boss, right? Yeah, the moment exactly. you take capital, nope. that person's your boss. Doesn't matter how much of the company they own, they can own 1%. If they now have the right to bitch at you all day and you have to take it, that's your boss, right? Yep. They may not be able to change your outcome or change your future as directly, but the moment they can tell you what to do, another example would be a client, right? I mean, at the agency, at uh, Blue Diesel, with the, the larger agency, we ended up netting a huge client in a company called Eli Lilly that paid us $50 million a year. If Lilly wanted to call us up and tell us that we all had to come to work naked, we'd all be coming to work naked, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> like, what they said was our future. Now, they paid us handsomely, so you know there, there's, there's an upside to it. But at the end of the day, they were our boss. Right. And, and that's not terribly unusual, but all of these things start to stack. And when we were building the company, we knew early on that part of our strategy was going to be to do some acquisitions for some key products to help build out the startups.com platform that yes. cost money. Right. Yes. Money that and the time. business and energy. Have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the natural progression there would be, let's go talk to some, some venture firms. Let's go raise some money. We'd raised money in, in plenty of other companies before. Hell, we, we own a fundraising platform that's raised a half billion dollars for companies. Like it's something yep. we could have done fairly we easily. We sort of know that routine, right? You bet. And so instead though, as we were doing these acquisitions, which were very uh, cash consumptive, we ended up digging into our own pockets to do it, right? Which is really hard. Unless you're willing to stick to the conviction that, we don't want to answer to someone else. The easy path would have been to take an investor check and make all that stress go away, right? The hard path is to say, yeah, this could bankrupt us both personally and professionally, but it doesn't matter. We're willing to stick this strong to that outcome that we don't want to answer to someone else. And over the last six years, we've had an insane number of offers to invest. Who knows if anybody would have invested? It's easy to offer. Who knows if that would go on through? Right, right, right. Um, we've had a whole bunch of companies come in that, that either like buy into the company, like a private equity company, or buy the company and things like that. And our answer is the same every time. It's, it, our answer is, look, you know, we don't hate money, so to speak. You know, we're not that altruistic. But at the same time, we don't want to answer to someone else. We've got a very specific mission around helping founders. And we're not looking for another boss to come in, no matter what the dollar figure looks like. Man, that's right. hard to say no to. It is. It's it, it, it's hard to say no to. Um, and, and I think that's that's key to all of this, right? Making sure that at the early stages, when you make these decisions and you say, this is what we're going to stand for, make sure that you feel as strongly about that as you can. 
or don't make that decision because when it comes time to test the metal of that decision, you don't get to rethink it at that point because if you do, then you're off your fundamental path. And the minute that starts to happen, the whole thing unwinds and yeah, whatever and it, you've optimized for at that point absolutely. just starts to erode. Also, I think if you, if you make those commitments and management doesn't stick to them, it starts to feel like a hollow commitment, right? If you say, exactly. hey, we're all about families, but you know, we have two weeks of maternity coverage, right? I mean, (laughs) those two things don't tend to sync too well. (laughs) Um, you know, in, in, in our organization at startups.com, we're primarily a female organization, right? It's very hard for us to say, as it relates to moms and pregnancy, we're a family organization. And yet we don't recognize the the importance of family when you're starting a new family, maternity, et cetera. And when, when we think about these policies, we have to think, very critically about how they work for us now, but also how they're going to expand in the future. Yes, absolutely critical uh, because the decisions can get harder, right? As things scale out, as your staff ages, for example, if you make that policy with a bunch of 21 year olds, it may not cost you much. All of a sudden, when people hit that age where they decide they all want to start families at the same time, roughly together, and that does happen in clusters, then uh, that can be a much harder decision to stand by. Uh, so, so back to my point about making absolutely sure that you're clear on the fundamental decision and why you want to stick to it and that it will remain important to you over time is really, really important. Absolutely. And I think over time, as the organization grows, you start to unlock these other things that you can do to create a little bit more of an optimized for happiness culture. But I just, I just want to reiterate that we didn't get to do all these things on day one. We intended them all on day one, but we've been very clear along the way about when and how we get to unlock these additional kind of opportunities. I, I, I'm a huge video gamer, so I think of everything in, in video game skill trees, and I think about how you can unlock the next level in your skill tree based <laughs> yeah. on your progression in the game, right? That's essentially what's happening here. Yep. We started with snacks. We ended with maternity coverage and work from home Wednesdays, work from home Fridays. Yeah, it, it didn't all it didn't all start at, uh, at at pure optimization for happiness, but we knew that's where we wanted to go. And we let that continue to be the guiding light. And we followed through on it. Absolutely. And, and I think it's also worth noting that most of the most impactful things that we've done had have had no financial cost whatsoever. You know, when, when we said one of the, the core tenets is we don't want to work with people we don't like, that has some implicit cost, right? In other words, yes. not working with, say, an investor that we didn't like, right? Like would have an implicit cost because we don't take the investment. Not right. hiring a person that we didn't like that could have really contributed to the business. Maybe they were a business development person that could have brought money to the table. It, it, it has an implicit cost, right? Work from home Wednesday, I would probably say we're better for it. We're probably more productive for it. But again, didn't have a, an explicit cost in that case. So a lot of the stuff we're talking about was as we're talking about unlocking with the growth and profitability of the business, the policies themselves may not cost a lot, but there's some, sometimes some implicit cost where, where you have more leverage now than later. That starts to matter. So if we were to summarize our discussion today, I think we've come across three areas that, that are really critical to optimizing for happiness. We started with talking about committing to really, really specific goals, nothing amorphous, make sure that they're, they're clearly understood by the people making the decisions and the rest of the organization so that they can follow through on them and hold you accountable for them. Yeah, uh, I think if you literally pick three, if you said, here's three goals, it's an arbitrary number, but three yep. goals, three things, and we could add more later, but let's pick three things that if these three things were in place 
and we could stick to them on a go forward basis, we'd be shocked at how great our lives are and how much the company enables us to do what we want. Yep. And incidentally, that's exactly what we ended up with, right? We had the, we don't want to work with people we don't like. Number one. Number two, we don't want to take away from our families. Number three, we don't want to answer to somebody else. And so, you know, it was, it was enough. They were concrete. Um, I think by the time you end up with five, six, seven, eight tenants to this policy that it gets harder for people to wrap their heads around. We had these three very clear and that helped us to drive the rest of our decisions. Absolutely. Um, the second thing that we talked about was that there are thresholds you have to cross that enable this, right? And the one that we talked about specifically was profitability, right? When you get to that point, it unlocks your ability to act on more of these things. Yeah, it, it's it's really hard to, to build a mountain while you're standing in a hole, right? <laughs> and, right. And, and so very inadvisable. In yeah, very inadvisable. And, and I think that there can be certain things you unlocked at different points of your progression. It doesn't have to be just profitability, but I think we pointed out profitability because that seems to be like a, a very soothing place to start to do some shit that you really want to do. But even still, there's no reason, even in, in the early stages, pre-profitability, you can't unlock some of these opportunities or some of these kind of uh, happiness points. I just tend to think that they're a little bit easier to do when the business is on slightly better footing, but you can level up yeah. to them. Yeah. Yeah. That, that little dark cloud of we're still hemorrhaging cash is going to impact your ability to 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 get to that balance point um, or, or work life blend point. And I think it really just, yeah, you're, you're going to have some sort of upper limit on your happiness at that point. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So then the last thing we talked about was then, you know, OK, you've, you've got these really specific goals. You're now doing the things that enable you to act on them, whether it's profitability or something else. The last stage was there's a really tangible and, and relatively high cost to sticking to these goals and that it's not easy, right? Setting them forth was relatively easy. Maybe even getting to the point where you could start to act on them was easy. But sticking to your guns when the shit hits the fan is tough. Yeah, it comes down to there's a moment of need. I need a client. I need investment. I need uh, to make a hire where you actually do what seems in the opposite of the company's best interest because it's in the best interest of what's making you happy. And yep. You know it the moment you go to make that decision. It's that weird pit in your stomach where there's something telling you, yeah, I know this is what I'm supposed to do for the business, but I fucking hate it. Right. right. And at that moment, yeah. at that moment, that's the moment of truth. That's the part where sticking to your goals is actually the hardest. You know, something that we didn't talk about, but I think would be an interesting thing, an interesting way to wrap this up is the fact that we're very open about optimizing for happiness as a company allows us to have dialogue around those types of decisions. So for example, if any one of us were going through that in a vacuum and just trying to optimize for our own happiness or even for, for, you know, happiness as a whole, but wasn't able to have that framework for dialogue, that discussion or that, that decision rather becomes really difficult. Absolutely. But the fact that we do have this and, and it's there's sort of the expectation that we'll make that decision. The fact that it's on the table makes it easier to do. And we're open about the outcome, right? We all want the business to do well, but we also want to see each other do well. And, and I think we're pretty intense about that. And we're pretty open about that discussion. And when we're not doing well, and I'm talking about, you know, all the folks in the company, we raise our hand and talk about it. It's like, dude, like I'm running myself into the ground. You know, I remember, yep. Ryan, a, f a few weeks ago, 
uh, I was telling you that creatively I was just tapped. Like I was in good shape. Like physically I felt okay, but creatively like trying to, you know, write another book and do all these other things. I just had no more energy left and I just needed to take some time off. Like just go. And in that case, I just needed to go in my workshop and go cover myself in sawdust and build stuff, do anything that doesn't involve being in front of a computer. And you're like, yeah, that's exactly what you need to do. And kind of giving me the permission, so to speak, to do that without feeling guilty about it. Right. And what's great about that is not only the, the permission on the back end, right, because we've set this culture, I know that's the right answer to give you, right? I know that it's okay to say that that's okay. You also knew it was okay to come to me in the first place and say, here's where I'm at. You bet. Right. The, the, and, and it's not incidental, right? This is something we've worked hard to build. Again, high cost is sticking to this thing, but we've done it. And I'd say we're, we're reaping the benefits of it now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap up for this episode of the Startup Therapy Podcast. As always, in the meantime, if you love what we're doing, please, please, please head over to iTunes, subscribe, and comment. If you want to connect with us directly, we're not hard to reach. Email us at therapy at startups.com. I've said this before. I'll say it again. We respond to every email that comes in, so don't be shy. What we learned today is a tiny fraction of the help that you can get from startups.com. Whether you need to learn how a startup gets built, to find a mentor, raise capital, get new customers, or if you just need to connect with founders who are dealing with the same things that you are, you'll find it on startups.com. With that said, let's get back to building our startups. This is Ryan Rutan for my partner, Will Schroeder, and the entire startups.com community saying goodbye for now, friends. 